like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we stand not just uh, not to really honor a ancient text, but we stand at the ready to be quick to hear and quick to obey. For when we read the Word of God, we hear God speaking to us. And so turn your Bibles to 1 John 2, and we're going to read verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 9 page 708 in the Pew Bible, if you need a Bible or look with your neighbor next to you. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous... You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for he we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we tremble at these words. We rejoice in the songs and the, and the season of Christmas. And yet, Lord, we see in your word that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare between you, Lord, and the devil, between sin and righteousness, light and darkness. And, Father, I pray that those who are prisoners of war, those who are in bondage, would be set free by the preaching of your word and the application by the Spirit. I pray, Lord, those that are in bondage to sin would be set free. Those who know you would reflect that in their living. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear from you. May we be doers of the Word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus came. But why? Why did he come? That's the question we want to answer over the next three weeks in this Christmas series. 
And so this morning, I want us to begin today by pondering that question and considering why Jesus came. Why did Jesus leave the the splendor and glory of heaven to come to the ugliness and sin of earth? Why did Jesus come? It's a most crucial question for us to consider. For a wrong answer here will take us in all sorts of wrong directions, leading us to some awful problems. And so it's crucial. It's important for us to know why Jesus came. Now, thankfully, we don't have to guess at an answer. The Bible gives us several different reasons why Jesus was born. And the first reason we're going to look at this morning may actually come as a shock to some of you. It may even be a surprise for some this morning as to why Jesus came. Notice this here in your notes coming up on the screen behind me. You can follow along in your notes, pull that insert out. And that, notice this reason here. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas destruction kind of has a nice, warm holiday ring to it, don't you think? Boys and girls, what's Christmas all about? Destruction. That's what Christmas is about. Now, the phrase doesn't exactly give you all those cozy, holiday, warm feelings inside. You would probably rather think and ponder on Christmas cheer and peace on earth. However... I would suggest to us this morning that until we realize that there's something in the world and something even in us that needs to be destroyed, we will miss the meaning of Christmas. So how is Christmas about destruction then? After all, it is true, as Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But we also learn that Jesus saves by destroying. Like a doctor who amputates a foot that's full of gangrene or cuts out a cancerous tumor in order to save the person. And so here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 3, verse 8. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested. In other words, He was, He appeared. He came. He was born on the flesh. Why? That He might destroy the works of the devil. And so in this one verse, we find, we see a reason why Jesus came. Christmas is the celebration, yes, of the manifestation of God's Son here on earth. And the reason is to destroy the works of the devil. So the reason there is Christmas is because God aims to destroy something. Jesus, again, himself, speak, quoting his words, he tells us in Mark 2, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so this is why the only people who truly understand Christmas for what it really is are people who feel sick, who know they are sick, and desperately want their sickness destroyed. In other words, unless you embrace Jesus as a destroyer in your life, you cannot have him as a savior in your life. So what I want us to do this morning, in looking at our text here in 1 John, 
is I want us to answer three different questions about the works of the devil and the reason Jesus came was to destroy those works. Now, the first and most obvious question then is, well, what are the works of the devil that John is talking about here? And we can answer it this way. The works are sin. The works of the devil are sin. This becomes rather clear when you consider what John writes in the beginning of verse 8 here in 1 John chapter 3. Notice in your Bibles what it says. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And then comes the key text that Jesus came to destroy what? The works of the devil. And then right after that, immediately in verse 9, John writes, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, in other words, God's nature, the life of God, remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And so John is telling us something here. John is saying the devil sins and those who sin are the devil. Devils, I mean, they're his. They, they belong to the devil. And then he says Jesus came to destroy the devil's works and no one who is born of God commits sin. And he's tying all these facets together. He's connecting the dots here for us. Therefore, for when people commit sin, John is telling us here that it is actually the work of the devil. In fact, the work of the devil is to tempt people to sin. And when they do sin, the devil's work is now accomplished. And so what Jesus came to destroy here is sin. The enemy on planet Earth is sin. The deadly virus that's in our hearts is sin. The force to be conquered across the world here is none other than sin. So in a very real way, Christmas is God's invasion of enemy territory. Why? For the very purpose to rescue people from the devil and to destroy the sin in our lives. Now, to kind of step back from this and begin to get a better idea of what John means here by this phrase or this concept, this idea, this mission, rather, of Jesus Christ, of why he was born to destroy the works of the devil, we need to consider the wider context of John's words as well as some of the false teaching that he was combating in which the reason goes to why he even wrote this letter in the first place. Without elaborating on it, let me summarize it for us. John is clearly concerned about his readers and even us here as Christ followers that we avoid sin in our lives. And so he's likely now responding to false teachers who denied that Jesus had actually come in the flesh. These false teachers also denied a truth, the specific truth that belief in Jesus ought to affect one's actions. In other words, these false teachers were claiming that you could believe in Jesus, but you don't have to live like Jesus. In response, John says, no, that's false. Because right beliefs in time produce right actions. For instance, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. 
It's why we call ourselves, those of us who claim to be uh, Christ's followers, that's the term we use. We follow Christ. We follow His ways. We walk like Christ. And we are conformed into the image of Christ. That's what God is doing in our lives once we receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. Here's John's point. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, then you will walk like Jesus. Not perfectly, as we will see here in a few minutes. It sounds simple, right? But our own experience teaches us that the power of sin, though, often prevents us from walking like Jesus. And that's why sin's power had to be destroyed. In order to see just how critical Christ's sin-destroying mission was, we need to get a better understanding of sin itself. And so let me give you three observations here that comes from the text about the reality of sin. And first of all, we see that the scope of sin is universal. It's universal. In other words, every person who has ever lived is affected by sin. Everyone. There are no exceptions. And sin has affected every single one of us here today, from the youngest to the oldest. So sin's scope is universal. John has already made this point clear back in the first chapter of this letter. You go there in verse 8, and he says, if we say that we have no sin, he says we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not even in us. And we're reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul says, for all have what? Sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason sin is universal is because we're all descendants of the first man, Adam, who rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. You can read all about that in Genesis chapter 3. And now, as a result of Adam's sin, every person is born with Adam's sin nature and his guilt. And so everyone in this world is a sinner by birth and by choice. The scope of sin is universal. Now, to catch the gravity of this, we need to see how John defines sin here specifically. And we see the character of sin is lawlessness. It's universal, but it's also the nature or the character of sin is lawlessness. Now, John gives this basic definition in verse 4, chapter 3, where he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness, he says. Now, the law in John's mind here is not the U.S. Constitution. It's God's law. God's law is the expression of God's will for mankind. And sin is a violation of God's law that has been revealed in his word for all of humanity. So, to summarize this idea, to live in sin, in other words, is to live as if your ideas are superior to God's ideas. It's to live as if you are outside or even above God's law. Sin, in other words, it looks in the face of God and it says, God, your law does not apply to me. I live according to my own laws, my own desires, my own ideas, my own ways. I am a law unto myself. I am my own God. This is what happens whenever we sin. 
We may not actually verbalize those words, but that is the nature of what's happening when we sin. We are engaging, to use John's terminology, we are engaging each time we sin in lawlessness. In other words, we are rebelling against the right of God to rule over our lives. You say, well, where did all this come from? Where did lawlessness come from? Although we inherit our sin nature from Adam, we have to go further back to get to sin's origins. Notice number three. The origin of sin, John tells us, is the devil. It's the devil himself. John says in 1 John 3, verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, that's a reference not to the beginning of human history, but rather a reference to before the Garden of Eden when sin originated with the devil's rebellion against God. Jesus actually refers to this. He makes mention of this when he said something similar to the religious leaders who wanted to kill him in John chapter 8, verse 44. Listen to what Jesus says. Speaking to these religious leaders, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And then he explains why. He says, because your will is to do your father's desires. That is the devil's desires. Instead of doing God's desire, his expressed will for your life. He, speaking of the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So talking about getting straight to the point, Jesus says sin originated with the devil, and everyone who sins shows that they are following the devil instead of following God. Now just let that soak in for a moment. Whenever you and I sin, John is saying here that we are like the devil. Why? Because when we sin, we are in active rebellion against God, who has the right to rule over our lives. This is how I want you to live. When we sin, we rebel against that and we go and live our own way. So here's the picture that John has given to us so far here. Sin's scope is universal. In other words, it affects all of us throughout human history. No one is exempt from this. We are all guilty of lawlessness. We've looked in the face of God, and although we maybe have never expressed this with our lips, we have done this, we've expressed it with our actions, we have said, God, your law does not apply to my life. And the origin of that is the devil himself. The work of the devil now is to tempt you, is to tempt me, is to tempt all of us here to reject God's authority has been expressed in his word or revealed to us in his word and become like God ourselves. In other words, to rule our own lives. And John says, this, this, this here, this is why Jesus came. 
to destroy the works of the devil. Now, this brings us to our second question. How did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? And the answer is by becoming the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We now come to the purpose of Jesus' mission here on earth. This is why he came. This is why Jesus was born. This is why we celebrate Christmas. To destroy the works of the devil by becoming the atoning sacrifice for my sin in your sin. We see this back in chapter 2 of 1 John. Look at it with me. Open your Bibles and notice this. See what it says here in verse 1, where John writes, My dear children, I write this to you. Why? So that you will not what? So you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Now, don't miss that because that's extremely important. John uses this phrase, this descriptive phrase of Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ is what? He is the righteous one. You know what that means? That means Jesus is the only one who is qualified for this mission of destroying the works of the devil. Why? Because in his very nature, Jesus is righteous and there's absolutely no sin in him at all. He is totally sinless. And so he is the only one who could fulfill the mission that his father sent him to do here on earth. And that is to destroy the works of the devil. No one else could do this. Only Jesus Christ. And yet, it's not simply that Jesus never committed a sin. John is saying that sinlessness is the very essence of who Jesus Christ is. This is what makes Jesus uniquely qualified for the mission of destroying the works of the devil. And notice how Jesus did this. John goes on to tell us how specifically here in verse 2, the next verse, he says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, the righteous one. I love that term for Jesus. The righteous one. In other words, the one who had no sin in him. The holy son of God. He took the guilt of our sin upon Himself with His death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And this is really, 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 really good news. Because John is showing us something here. He's showing us here that Jesus came to destroy sin by taking the payment of our sin and the guilt of our sin upon Himself so that we would not have to bear the wrath of God. Because of our sin. Wow. Man, be amazed by that. Be in awe of that. Because that is the wonder of Christmas. And I know, uh, Friday night, we were down by the Plaza Lights uh, with a, for a basketball game. And so we were driving down through 
the Mission Hills and the plaza and lights and all that. And, and my wife and I were just kind of, ah, ooh. And Jack and Christian in the back, they're like, big deal, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I know, the wonder of Christmas. This, this is the wonder of Christmas. But this begs the question, though. How? How do we participate in this wonder of Christmas? How do we participate in Jesus' victory over sin? And John tells us. And here's the answer. By believing in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. By believing in Jesus Christ. Now, because Jesus came as the righteous one to die on the cross, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, we, we, all of us here this morning, we now have opportunity to participate in Jesus' victory by trusting in Him as the atoning sacrifice, or to use John's word, believing in Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice. John writes... You jump ahead to chapter 5 here in the book of John, and he writes in verses 4 and 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the way for you and I to personally participate in Christ's victory over the world in the works of the devil, John says, is through our faith. That is, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and trusting in Him as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. As we learn last Sunday... When you've experienced this, when you have experienced God's mercy on your life, when you have experienced Christ's victory over sin, it moves you to praise Him. Because you begin to understand and you have personally tasted now Christ's death on the cross has fully paid for our sins. And He has reconciled us to God the Father when we were hopeless and helpless. And because we are now in Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, God now sees us as righteous instead of guilty. However, Christ's sin-destroying work doesn't only change our spiritual standing before God. And what that means, a spiritual standing before God, is God no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a son. It's a legal standing. It's a positional standing. You are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. You have exchanged through Christ's death on the cross your sinfulness, and God has given you Christ's righteousness, and it covers you. And so now God sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and He no longer deals with you as a sinner, but He deals with you as a son, and nothing can change that. That is our spiritual standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ because He is our atoning sacrifice. But listen, all of this doesn't affect just that. It also changes that reality, that spiritual position before God. Our spiritual standing now, declared righteous, I'm justified, I'm a son of God. That reality, folks, 
John is telling us changes our lives now. In other words, John wants us to understand something here, something powerful, that this reality changes our actions. It changes how I live, my behavior, my attitude. It changes everything about me. Why? Because I now have a radical new relationship to sin as a result of participating in Christ's victory over sin. Let me show you this. Here's the result of what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. First of all, our belief in Jesus now makes persistent sin inconceivable. Notice how John describes the Christian's pattern of life here in verse 6. He says, whoever abides in him, that is Jesus, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. In other words, our belief in Jesus makes sin inconceivable. And the key word here, don't miss it, is persistent. John is not saying that once we believe in Jesus, we will never sin again. That's not what he's saying. John even talks about, earlier on in the letter, he talks about how we will still wrestle with sin, even as Christians. But he also says at the same time that if we are truly born again, we will confess our sin. And God is faithful and just to what? Forgive us and cleanse us all over again. So clearly then, we do not become sinless the moment we are born again. That's not what John is saying here. John is not talking about a one-time act of sin, but rather a persistent pattern of life of sin. So what does John mean then when he says in this verse, whoever abides in him, in Jesus Christ, does not sin? Again, the answer comes back to that word persistent. God's children, listen to me here, God's children do not persist in a sinful pattern of living. What John is saying is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whose very purpose in coming was to take away sin and to destroy sin, when you believe in that Christ, He's saying, listen, it makes no sense to continue living in sin then. If you have truly been born again by the Word of God and the power of God, to continue to live in sin for John is inconceivable. Instead, you run away from sin rather than indulging in it. And you run from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That's what John is saying here. And then he ratchets it up a level. Not only does our belief in Jesus make persistence inconceivable, but he goes on and notice this. He actually says our new birth in Jesus makes persistent sin even 
impossible. Notice what he writes in verse 9. It's rather radical. He says, whoever is born of God does not sin. And then he tells us why. For his seed, that is God's seed, remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now again, John says we cannot sin. Why? Because God has put his seed or his life, his nature in us, and we have been born of God. And so let me just, you know, a myth that kind of is out here sometimes that we can latch on to is this idea. And there's no room, no, nowhere in the Bible is there room for the idea that you can just, you know, pray a prayer and consider yourself saved and then continue to live in sin like it's just no big deal. Like it doesn't matter. I'm fine. I got my ticket to heaven. When I die, I'm going there. I mean, I can live any way I want. John says that mentality, that's impossible. That doesn't add up. For those who are truly born again. Now, here's the big question. What classifies then as continuing in sin? This persistent sin. Well, John does not give us that answer specifically. And perhaps the reason why is because the issue is not how much sin can I continue in and still consider myself saved. Safe, I'm going to heaven when I die. Rather, the issue, and it's always the issue, is am I born again by faith in Jesus Christ? That's the issue. And even now, I ask you to consider yourself, to examine your heart. Have I been born again? through faith in Jesus Christ as my atoning sacrifice. That's the issue. To be born of God is to be given new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Being born of God is being changed by God so that the dominion of sin is now broken. You have the seed of God. You have the spirit of God. You have the life of God dwelling in you so that now you desire what God desires. You want what God wants. You think like God thinks. You live like God lives. Not perfectly. John's not saying perfectly. John knows that we will still sin at times. And he says, for those who do, if you are truly born of God, here's what will happen in your life. You will will feel this guilt and remorse, and more than that, repentance will come into your life. And you will repent of your sin. You will confess it, and you will seek out God's forgiveness, and He will cleanse you again. And you will be miserable when you have unconfessed sin in your life. God's life is evident in you. You've been born of God. And no one who is born of God can continue to live the same. It's impossible for you to be born of God and still live in persistent pattern of sin. That's what John is getting to. And John says, Jesus came 
to destroy that persistent pattern, that domination in our lives so that we don't have to live in this persistent pattern of sin anymore. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect. Listen, I look forward to the time when we don't have to battle sin. Do you? That day is coming. But before we get to that point, we dare not walk away from all of this without making application to ourselves here. Because it's clear that we only have two options based on what John writes here in verse 10. Look at it. He says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. And so here's the Christmas option. Either we are children of the devil or we are children of God. So again, I ask you, which category are you in at this moment? And there's only two options. There's not three, there's not four, there's not five. Either we are children of the devil or we are children of God. Feel the weight of this. There is an adversary. His name is the devil who desires that everyone in this world will burn in hell. And he wants to make the path there as smooth as deceptive and as easy as possible. So don't be deceived. If you are a slave to sin, if you live persistently in lawlessness, if you are in active rebellion against God, then the Bible makes it clear that you are a child of the devil and you're deserving of eternal death. But there's hope. There is Christmas hope here this morning in Jesus Christ. If you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your atoning sacrifice. In fact, Jesus gives us this promise in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, but as many as received him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. If, on the other hand, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and your life is progressively reflecting a love for God, then you have evidence that you are a child of God and children of God. John goes on and he talks about this in his letter. Here's the pattern. Here's, here's the, the, the issue for the children of God. We hate sin. And so rather than pursuing it, we confess it and we forsake it. And we are grateful now to be part of God's eternal family through faith in Jesus Christ. And like John, we cry out in our hearts in 1 John 3, 1, where he writes, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now here's the question, though. What about the sin that's still in our lives? The sin that keeps rearing its ugly head even after we become children of God, even after we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. What about that sin? Will we always struggle with sin and be frustrated with our lack of obedience? After all, didn't Jesus come to destroy the works of the devil? Yes, over 2,000 years ago, let me tell you, Jesus came as a baby to destroy the works of the devil so that sin and death no longer have to dominate our lives. In other words, 
Sin's mastery had been decisively defeated at the cross. That's what allows us now to walk in obedience as Christ followers. However, Jesus is not finished dealing with sin. Jesus is not finished coming. And this is our Christmas anticipation. Jesus is coming back. He's coming again. You go back a few verses here in 1 John. And John talks about Christ's second coming now. Listen to what he says in verse chapter 2, verse 28. He says, And now little children abide in Him, that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And so John is not looking to the past. John is now looking to the future when Jesus appears. And that word appear, it has the idea that John is looking to a literal, physical, visible Christ Jesus appearing now at the second coming. Just think of it. There is coming a day when we will be going about our lives in this world, going to work tomorrow. Going, watching TV at night, whatever the case may be. And suddenly, out of the blue, we will see Jesus in all His glory. Are you looking forward to that day? Look forward to that. More than you are looking forward to the Chiefs going back to the Super Bowl. Look forward to that more than you're looking forward to your next vacation. Look forward to that, John says. And then John says in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Did you catch that? John says that when Christ comes again, we will be what? Like Him. We'll be like Him. Which means, among other things, that we will never sin again. Yay! We won't even have to battle sin, struggle with sin. This is the whole purpose of God redeeming us, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so God is working everything together to make us who are born of again like His Son, Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day when Jesus appears and we will be with Him and we will be like Him for all eternity. This is our Christmas anticipation. This is what we hope for and look forward to. Jesus came the first time as a baby to destroy the works of the devil. But folks, listen, He is coming back as a conquering king, to complete his work of making all things new. And this anticipation of Christ's coming, let me tell you, it should transform the way we live while we wait. John says in chapter 3, verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, you say, what hope? Well, it's not the hope that you're going to get a present on Christmas Day that you've been telling everybody about. It's not that hope. The hope John's talking about is the hope of Jesus' second coming. 
the hope that Jesus is coming again. And it's not a hope that I kind of hope so. This hope is a for sure hope. It's a hope in the reality and in the fact that it is going to happen. It's a surety. That's the hope that he's talking about here. And he says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So how do we purify ourselves? How do you become more like Jesus? And John is basically saying it this way, by fixing your eyes on him. You fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. You abide in him and you abide in the word of God. You worship him and you live for him. And as you do those things, you will become more like what, get this, you behold. Here's the problem, especially in our culture right now. As Christ followers, we don't behold the right stuff. John is telling us, lift your eyes and behold the Son of God who is coming again. Fix your eyes on him. And the problem is, we are beholding all the things in the world. We fix our eyes on this stuff. Our heart and our minds are on this, this, that. We're pursuing the pleasures of the world. We're beholding the power of the world. And when your heart and mind is on the stuff of this world, the pursuits and pleasure of this world, you will not grow then in becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so John is pleading with us as little children, as beloved sons and daughters of God. He's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus and purify your life now. And he tells us why. He says, listen, in 1 John 2, 8, that when he appears, when Jesus comes again, we may have this confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In other words, who of us here as true born-again believers in Jesus Christ, who of us wants to be found toying with temptation and groveling in sin when Jesus comes back? Oh, God forbid. Instead, John is saying, you want to be confident. You want to be ready when the righteous one comes again. So let us pray. As individuals, let us pray as a community of Christ followers. Let us pray with one another that Jesus would find us here this morning beholding Him, pursuing Him, worshiping Him, and longing for Him. And may God deliver us from a casual and carefree, minimizing and justifying approach to sin. This, this is why Jesus came. To destroy the works of the devil so that we here might remain in Christ and also resemble Christ till the day he comes again. Let's pray. As you bow your hearts, you close your heads, or your eyes, I should say.
Perhaps you're here and you realize that if Jesus came today, and folks, that could be a reality, Jesus could come at this moment. You would be filled with shame as a believer. Or perhaps you'd be left behind because you have yet to trust in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. Listen, today God offers you forgiveness of sin. He offers you eternal life through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. God loves you so much that His Son died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus has already done everything there is to do. The only thing left is for you to believe and receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord to move from the devil's family to God's family. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth. It would not return void. I pray by your spirit you would work in those that you are calling even now to your eternal family. Grant them faith to cry out to you and believe in you and receive your son Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for their sins. May they pray to you even now as the music plays. This is your time for you to respond. As the music plays, will you respond as need be? Thank you.